0: Father, we are grateful that you called us here this morning. We are thankful that whether we woke up excited and ready to hear from you or just sort of crawling in because we knew we needed it even though we didn't want it, that you brought us here, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would give us teachable hearts, I ask that you would give us hearts that are willing to hear, willing to be challenged, and willing to let you speak again to us, even if we find ourselves disappointed and confused by you. Father, we thank you for the men and women around the world that are laboring to help many encounter you. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen your people around the world who are caring for the most vulnerable and in need. Lord, we thank about our city. We thank you for our friends. Um, we thank you for brothers and sisters across the city that are meeting with you right now. We ask that you would be faithful to meet them, and we ask that you would be faithful to meet us. Uh, Jesus, we honor you, and yeah, we ask that you would give us faith um, for all the places that we struggle to believe. Love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.
1: Amen. So grateful for Patrick and Amber. If you're new to church today, new here today, I think it's only fair that I explain what my role here is. My title here is that of teaching pastor, which means I have the privilege on most Sunday mornings to bring the teaching in a given year. And my goal in that assignment is fairly simple, and I'm simply trying to carry out the final Command of Jesus Christ on earth, which he gave to his disciples in Matthew 28 18 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So this is pretty clear, isn't it? I'm, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not a politician, I'm not a dance instructor, I'm a Bible teacher, and my assignment in that teaching is to help those who follow Christ to honor Him and enjoy Him and experience Him by obeying Him, everything that He said. So earlier in the service today I baptized a young man named Will Hoy. So my responsibility as his pastor and for as long as I have any spiritual connection to Will's life is my role is to help him see the greatness of God, the greatness of God's beauty, the greatness of God's purity, the greatness of God's power and the greatness of God's love so that using the scripture I am to persuade will to obey everything that Jesus commanded will. So if you want to know what you should expect when you come into a Bible teaching church or just a New Testament church on Sunday morning, you should expect someone like me to cover all of the subjects in the Word of God so that you can know everything that Jesus taught. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then it is unimportant to obey anything that he said. If Jesus is the Son of God, then it is infinitely important to obey everything that he said. Jesus Christ was a master communicator. He was efficient. He was effective. uh, He was interesting. And one of his favorite techniques that he loved to do was to tell stories. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the biographical sketches of his life, and in those four Gospels, they include 39 stories that we call parables. They are simple stories with profound truths that always regard your relationship with God. Now, I told you last week, My December and January Bible reading, I have enjoyed being in one of the historical sketches of the life of Christ, the biography of Christ as recorded in the book of Luke. And it was surprising to me as I looked at the book of Luke, how many of the parables of Jesus are in that gospel. I'd forgotten. Jesus told 39 parables in his ministry. Twenty-four of them are included in the book of Luke. Three of them in the book of Luke are directly related to the issue of money. Last week we looked in Luke chapter 12 at one of Jesus' money stories at a man who was a materialist, very rich, but did not think because of his materialistic philosophy, did not think he would ever die. Materialists don't. So he did not regard preparation for death as something that was important. Four chapters later where we are today, Jesus again deals with the subject of money by way of parables or stories. And again deals with the subject of thinking about money spent now, how it relates to the hereafter. We should not be surprised when we're reading the book of Luke that Jesus continues this teaching and this stress on money. Because he knows that we will struggle With this issue of money more than any other topic of life. When you read the Bible, you will see that there's a lot more stress laid on the topic of money than there is laid on the topic of sex. Now, God did this because he knows that we're going to struggle a lot more with financial temptation than sexual temptation, And I know I just freaked out these students. They say, you mean it gets worse? (laughs) Ten times worse. Ask your parents. You think you struggle with temptation now? Become an adult and money temptation ten times stronger than any sexual temptation you will deal with now. So I felt last week when we looked at the one money story, it would simply be cowardly on my part to just go something else as if we had fully exhausted the subject, especially since it was laid out so clearly that Jesus had more to say. So I want to dive into Luke chapter 16 and look at one more uh, money story from Jesus Christ uh, today. I want you to sort of, let's modernize it by thinking about this scenario. I want you to imagine yourself as the owner of a small lumber Yard, your sales manager comes in the first quarter every day and shows you impressive numbers of sales. You can hardly keep up with the inventory as contractors with their trucks comes in and and takes out inventory because so much is being sold. But as the quarter ends and the next quarter rolls around, it becomes clear to you that the contractors have no intention of paying you for the inventory they took in the previous quarter. And you discover that the sales manager told them to not worry about a time regarding payment. And now you realize how the reason for the success of the sales, he basically gave away your inventory. Well, you have no choice but to fire your sales manager, but that still does not resolve the financial loss that your company experienced. So the situation looks like it's going to be a total loss, except for the fact that everything can be suddenly changed when you are the storyteller, which Jesus assumes that he Is And so we love how Jesus changes the end of the story that we would never be able to predict. Let's pick up with how the story changes direction. Luke 16, 3, the manager, sales manager, said to himself, what shall I do now? My manager is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, People will welcome me into their houses. So the guy's in a fix. He knows he's about to be unemployed. But he's been sitting around a desk so long, he doesn't have any muscles. So he can't do physical labor. And he knows so many people in the community, he's ashamed to become a beggar. So he comes up with some ingenious plan. I'm going to do something creative to make sure that when I'm fired... All my former customers will take care of me gladly. What can I do? Very interesting strategy. Here's his plan, Luke 16, 5. So he called in each of the, the master's debtors, former customers, and he asked the first, how much do you owe the company? Uh, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. Well, the, manager, the sales manager told him, well, then take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. What a deal. Man, just to reduce it in half. Wouldn't you love that if Visa and MasterCard did that with you? Verse 7, then he asked the second customer, and how much do you owe the company? Uh, a thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He said, well, you just take your bill and make it eight hundred. So he decided you know, he'd see all the people and just reduce the portion of what they owed and let their bills be settled. So now, since he took this on his own initiative, let's see how Jesus responds to this guy's actions. He took it on his own to speak for the company. Let's see how it fared, what Jesus' own commentary with what he did as Jesus assumes the position of storyteller. The master, this is the owner of the company, commended. Remember Jesus telling this story. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So let me officially welcome you this morning to the strangest story that Jesus ever told and without a doubt the least taught on parable of all 39 in the Gospels. And the reason it's so not taught on is that pastors, Bible teachers are terrified that Jesus is actually commending unethical business practices, and let me assure you that is not his intention at all. In order to arrive at his true point, Jesus decides to use words, the only tool that a teacher has, as a shock value in order to get your attention. So does he have your attention now? Yes, so now he arrives at his point. The second half of verse 8 is key to starting to know where Jesus is going with this. He describes two groups of people in verse 8 the people of the world which would be a reference to unbelievers versus the people of the light which would be a reference to those who believe and follow God and so Jesus is saying here that the people of the world think more they think a lot more about the future than the people of the light people Of the world are, now they don't think like 10,000 years future, but they think 20, 30, 40, 50 years future. They are great at doing the math. That's all they do is they think about how is my retirement looking. They're consumed with it. And so. How much wealth can I accumulate so that in 30 years I can experience fun purchases, fun travel, fun leisure? What do I need to do now in order to experience the highest possible pleasure 30 years from now? And so this is what Jesus is commending about the shrewd business manager. He's thinking about the future while he's making present Financial decisions. So Jesus looks at all of this and says, Learn from this, people of light. Learn to be thinking about future outcomes of present financial decisions in regard to how you spend money. This is where Jesus is going with this. People of light. If the world is obsessed with thinking about future in light of present, money, habits, you should be all the more thinking about the future with your present spending. Why? Because God has enabled you, people of light, Not to see 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the future. God has enabled you, people of light, to see 10,000, 100,000, a million years into the future. He's enabled you to see the city of God. And so you, people of light, should be making decisions with your money here based on what will happen one million years from now with your present financial decisions. But... The world, people of the world, think more about the future than the people of light. And that's a shame. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves (laughs) so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What happened to the shrewd manager? He used his money in such a way that the way that he dealt with people and the use of money, that when his job was gone, they welcomed him into their home. What's the point? Here's the point. Use your money in such a way, people of light, that after you die, you will walk into heaven where you will be welcomed by people who will shout with joy, I am here in this eternal city of joy because of how you spent your money on earth. People of light, this is the way you should be thinking about money. If the world is thinking 30 years from now, you should be thinking 30,000 years from now of who's going to be in heaven because of the way you spent your money. Wouldn't it be lovely to one day go to heaven and hear somebody come to you and say, your church built a water well in Liberia, West Africa, and it kept our family alive when I was a child. And when I grew up as a teenager, I accepted Christ because of that water well. Thank you for spending money the way you did. Your church sent a truck to the inner city in Spartanburg to teach Bible stories every Thursday. And those stories of Jesus were the only thing that kept me from joining a gang and going to prison. Thank you. Your church supported a woman who hung out on our campus at USC Upstate. When I was a freshman, I almost threw my life away with partying. But eventually I attended a Bible study where I gave my life to Christ, and I'm in the city of joy in heaven because your church supported Campus Crusade for Christ. People of light, think like that. That's the purpose of the parable. If the world's going to devote all of its resources to fattening up retirement accounts, then surely we who have, the, have seen the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ will use money so that when we die, we will see people, their faces in heaven thanking us that they are experiencing a holy party of unending pleasure in the presence of God because we supported churches and missionaries that told them of the hope of the gospel. Now, if some of you are bothered and you just find it, a little bit too mystical, radical, Phil like Jesus, a little bit too hippie language for the way he went at this. He's, he said, that's fine. You just want, it be, you want to be a straight shooter? You just want me to talk straight with you? Now, the rest of Luke 16, he just does nothing but shoot straight with you. Luke 16, 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very Much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. I think it's worth coming to church just to hear this statement. Who you are now is who you will be later. I can't tell you how many people I've heard when things get better for me financially, then I will be I will give to God. If you are unfaithful to God with little, it only gets worse. You'll create such bad habits now. I've heard people say this. Because I have so little now, I'm just going to spend my little all on me. That's their philosophy. (laughs) I just have so little, it's not worth giving any to God. Therefore, because I have little, I'll spend it all on me. Listen. You create that habit when God gives you a lot, you'll just spend a lot on you. Because that's what Jesus said. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. If you're dishonest with very little, you will be dishonest with much. Who you are now is who you will be later. I just got to, I don't care if we're talking about money or not. Why do you think something in the future is going to change if you're walking on this path? Whatever path you're walking on now, that's where you're going to end up. Who you are now is who you'll be later. You want something else different about your future? Then change it now. Don't even apply it to money. Apply it to everything else. Anything else. You want a different later? Now. Change now. Who you are now is who you'll be later unless you change now. Verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So when I read this verse this week, I immediately saw that Jesus was trying to make a contrast. Do you see the contrast here when you're reading the Bible? Do you see that he intentionally tried to say there's a difference between worldly wealth and true riches do you see how he said that it's just right there he's saying there's a difference between worldly wealth and true riches like they're polar opposites so then you have to ask the question why is worldly wealth not true wealth that's the question you would want to ask as a bible student as a teacher Why is worldly wealth not true wealth? Because he said it's not. See, he said it's not. That's that, like, you're going to miss the verse if you don't ask that question. Why is worldly wealth not true wealth? And the first question is you can't use it later. It becomes worthless. In 18, April of 1861, when the American Revolution began, the Confederacy began printing their own money. And the money they printed was called, was called graybacks. The Union printed its money called greenbacks, which we, we still refer to that today. But the Confederacy printed graybacks in order to finance the war in the South. The Confederacy printed its own money. And for two years... Confederate money was worth a lot. But as it became clear that the Confederacy was going to lose the war, the grayback became worthless. So that after the war, even if you had a million grayback dollars, you had zero dollars. So the reason that Jesus says that worldly wealth is not true wealth is there's going to come a time when you die and go to heaven and $10 million means nothing. It just goes away. So Jesus wants to know that worldly wealth is not true wealth in the sense that there is a land coming where it is Worthless, and so this, of course, raises the question: What is true wealth? What? What? I want to know what true wealth is. I think this answers it. You got to look at how Paul refers to the church in Thessalonica to figure out what is true wealth. Paul said in First Thessalonians two nineteen, this is how he talked about the church. How I would certainly talk about you. For what is our hope? Our joy. Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. So look at how Paul talks about the church. He talks about the church as a crown. As a treasure. In other words, when the war is over, when life is over, when history is over, Paul said, I'm going to have Wealth, I'm going to have a crown, I'm going to have diamonds, I'm going to have jewels. It's going to be the church that I started in Thessalonica. People are true wealth. True crowns are the people that have been brought to Christ by the way that money was spent and the way that time was spent on earth. Mother Teresa devoted her entire life to helping the poor in Calcutta. Ronnie and I have traveled there before, and it's an unbelievably complex and unfortunately um, sin-stained, pain-ridden city. And Mother Teresa just devoted her life to caring for the poor, working in filthy situations. And she was asked by a news reporter on on one instance, I wouldn't do what you're doing for all the money in the world. Teresa responded, Teresa responded, neither would I. She didn't do it for all the money in the world. She did it for all the people of Calcutta being in heaven. Because those are her crowns. True wealth. Use money now That could be translated into true wealth later, which are people that have been influenced by the gospel. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Here's my summary statements of verse 11. If you treasure money, you'll not treasure watching people come to Christ. If you do not realize that all worldly wealth is headed to zero value, then you will keep holding on to it instead of spending it now on people who can live forever in heaven. So Luke 16, 11 is about eternal influence. Those who love money will never influence people regarding the most important decision in life one's relationship with God now here's a great motivation to be able to let go of worldly wealth now in verse 12 and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property who will give you property of your own so again the question to ask here what does Jesus mean when he talks about what does it mean what can I have property of my own I'm losing everything now. What property can I have forever? Again, I think we have to go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, but now we're going to end the verse. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown? There's the money, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. These are In English and Greek, words of possessive nature, uh, grammatically possessive. You're mine. This is what, you say, I want some property in heaven. I mean, I want property too. My property in heaven are people that I have had the privilege of leading to Christ. And Paul gets to say, in heaven, I mean, like, in in heaven, what are you going to do? You say, hey, Jesus, look at my Look at my 10,000-acre ranch. Look. No. I mean, look what Billy Graham gets to say in heaven. Jesus, look at all these people in Eastern Europe that I got to give to you through the preaching of the gospel. So the treasure, the crown, the money, the property that is ours in heaven, something that we can keep, are are the people that we got to influence for christ that 's what we get to hold on. To. we get to be with them forever and we will never never lose them This is a very interesting statement <clears throat> in verse twelve If you have not been trustworthy with someone else 's property, <clears throat> who will give you property of your of your own. So we saw here that property of my own, property of my own is the property I get in heaven, right? We saw that. Property that I'm going to own, property that's mine, that I can never lose are people. People that I get to spend eternity with because I use my money, my time, my labor on earth. I got to win them, lead them to Christ, and they are mine in the sense of I, can never, I will never be separated from them in heaven. I led them to Christ on college, inner city, mission trips, mission field, my family members. I led them to Christ. They'll they, Never be separated, my property, in that sense. And the only way they get there is if I am trustworthy with somebody else's property on earth. That's interesting. The only way I can have property in heaven, people, is if I handle somebody else's property on earth, money. Don't miss this, please. I know that's, could be. The only way I can have property in heaven, people, is if I handle in a trustworthy manner, somebody else's property on earth. So you have to ask, whose property am I handling? God's. Not yours. Because it's not yours. You're handling God's property, God's money, God's house, God's assets. So verse 12 is the absolute key to all money management. I can never do what I want with my money is because it's not my money. Man, how about me whipping out a quote from 1850 on money management for a 2019 crowd? Alexander McLaren, love this. It was God's, this is talking about our property. It was God's before he gave it. It was his when he gave it. It was his after he gave it. My name is never to be written on my property. So as to erase the name of the owner, I am a steward. I am a trustee. It all belongs to him. Wow. I own nothing. I'm a steward. So if I handle somebody else's property faithfully on earth, God's, then I can have property in heaven. That's Luke 16. But you'll never think like this. This is radical. You know, own nothing. Nothing. You'll never think like that. I mean, that, that will be restrictive to you. That will sound like, like just like you're in chains and bondage. That will sound so unfun until you see something big and wonderful happens in your life, and that is you fall in love with God. Giving is not about giving. Giving is about loving. And when you begin to love God and see how wonderful He is, then the giving comes. You just can't think like that until the love happens. Now that's, and that's why Jesus said it's all about love in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one And love the other. See, it's all about love. Or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money, not God, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Now, you have to appreciate Jesus as a teacher because he makes it clear exactly where you stand you can't have two masters. You can't be married to two people at the same time. You can't play for two football teams at the same time. And you can't have two gods at the same time. You either love money or you love God. So you have to ask your question, who is your master? Who do you really love? And these questions, I think, from Stephen Um will help. What are your thought patterns? How often do I think about money? You can get these later on the web when we post a sermon. How often do I think about money? Just try to answer who's my master. What is my biggest passion? Am I obsessed with acquiring more things that I might increase my pursuit of pleasure? Am I ob- obsessed? Do I enjoy giving freely as God directs me? Or do I find it difficult to live with a generous hand? And then I love this quote by Stephen Am, A lack of generosity is proof that some other lover has captured our affections. So answering these questions will help determine who really is the great love of our life. So how do we know that the Pharisees loved money and they did not love God? Because they got mad at Jesus when he talked about money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and sneered at Jesus. Do you know how to tell if you love something? You are in love with something if when someone attacks it, you become defensive. Let me say that again. You know you are in love with something if when someone attacks it. How about it, men? Let me take a shot at your wife today. Let me say something off color. You love her, you'll become defensive because you love her. Why do people get mad when a teaching pastor teaches about money? Because they are in love with money. It's not a problem with me, it's a problem with you. You know you're in love with something, and when someone attacks it, you grow defensive. What was Jesus' response when he knew they became angry? He kept at it. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. What is Jesus saying here? As long as you hang out with the same people who have the same values as you do, (laughs) then you're always going to be able to ask their opinion, and you can justify whatever life you're living, and they're going to agree with you. If you're going to base all of your life based on how many people, how many likes you get on Facebook, then you're never going to be challenged with your values. You can justify yourself in the eyes of others by having people agree with the values, your values of money. But look at the sobering statement here in verse 15, but God knows your hearts. He knows whether or not you love him or you love money. And then Jesus says, what an indicting statement. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Interview the world. Interview the world and ask the world what is valuable. And whatever they tell you, then you'll know that's detestable in God's sight. Let's do an interview. Hey, world, what do you think is valuable? And they'll say, hoarding wealth. Is valuable. Pursuing comfort is valuable. Living for momentary pleasure is valuable. And God will say, all of those valuables are detestable in my sight. God has a different grading system than the world. What the world grades as an A, God gives an F. And what the world says gets an F, God says gets an A. And if I were you, I would choose God's report card over the world any day of the week. Why? I'll close with this. 1 John 2, 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And that is why we worship Jesus Christ. Son of God left heaven to come to earth. He could have had anything he wanted, all the money, all the fame, All the power, all the pleasure, but he turned it down for one thing, to do the will of God. And what was the will of God? To live a perfect life. To die on a cross. To bear in his body, to absorb in his skin and his bones and in his blood. The penalty for all of the times that we loved something more than God. And Jesus was successful at removing your sin because there was never a time in His life when He loved anything on earth more than He loved God. And we are accepted by God when we do the will of God imperfectly because Jesus Christ did the will of God perfectly. So, giving is not about giving. It's about loving. Missions is not about giving. It's about loving. So, don't aim at giving until you first aim at loving. Loving God. Look at Him so often that you love Him often and give to Him often. Look at the moon and the stars. Look at the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls. Look at how God fights for his people in scripture. But you must look beyond all of these. And for every one time that you look at nature and history, look ten times at the cross where Jesus suffered for all of our guilt. Look ten times at the resurrection where he walked out of the tomb and triumphed over death. Look ten times at Jesus where he took away the shame of Peter, cowardly Peter and elevated that man to become the leader of the early church. Look to Jesus often and you will love Him and you will give. I stood outside this week Some of you did, looked at the blood red moon. Two o'clock in the morning, I'm shivering in my backyard. And I look at that beautiful lunar eclipse, and I thought about Joel, chapter 2, verse 31. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And I thought to myself, how awesome it would be tonight, Lord If I could hear the archangel blow his trumpet for heaven's gates to open wide and to see the kingdom of the universe descend. But you know, Jesus did not return that night. It was only a dress rehearsal. But he's coming. And for those who've trusted in Christ's death and resurrection like Will did today, God will make all things new. Will's mother crippled We'll run one day in heaven. The grieving mother who lost a child this year at Hope Point will rejoice. And sin will never shame again and will never deceive and destroy. And all of us one day will see the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And every longing of our heart will be satisfied in heaven forever and ever and ever. And that is why we give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of giving. Because thank you for the privilege of loving. And thank you for the greatest news of the gospel that we are loved by the God of the super blood wolf moon. We are loved by the God of the coming of Christ as a baby. We are loved by the God of the second coming of Messiah, King, Savior. We are headed to the land where our souls will never die. And satisfaction will only increase And the crippled will dance, and the sorrowful will rejoice, and the abused will sit on thrones, and the poor will be infinitely rich with delight, with power, with privilege with royal sonship and daughterhood. Thank you that we are washed in the blood of Christ and we have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God and we are heaven bound. And soon and very soon, that city will descend from heaven and we will be with you forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us again?